Hello, welcome to episode 11 of Legally Different. Thanks so much for joining. My guest in this episode is Vicky Praise. Vicky is a human rights lawyer, a podcaster, a writer, and a mentor to budding human rights lawyers and professionals. Vicky's human rights work primarily centers around dignity behind bars, torture prevention, and prison reform. Such impactful and interesting areas of the law. So it was so interesting to chat to Vicky around these. Um, Vicky's had a wide variety of experience both in the UK and internationally and I love what she says. She says, London is my home but the world is my workplace. And yeah, she's had a ton of international experience um, from being in the field in Kosovo working on minority issues to working in Geneva helping the UN on human rights issues. Something that really caught my attention is a report she's been recently working on to do with human rights violations in Belarus against by the government against creatives and academics and this centers around um, prohibiting their freedom of speech and freedom of expression and I'm particularly interested in this at the moment because it's not just something that's happening in Belarus it's worldwide it's kind of happening to us and it's something that I've kept an eye on in recent times and yeah I'm really interested in it to dive into and I'm grateful for Vicky for putting the spotlight on that in the context of what's going on in Belarus at the moment and I couldn't have had a human rights lawyer on at the moment without going into human rights issues to do with the current pandemic and in particular the vaccine rollout. Again this is something I'm really passionate about and interested in obviously because it impacts us all doesn't it at a personal level in some way shape or form whatever your views are and yeah, it was really interesting to hear from Vicky um, what the human rights position is in relation to the vaccine rollout um, in terms of um, our bodily autonomy, our medical right to say no, um, whether countries will impose mandatory requirements that one must be vaccinated to enter. Um, and then there's the other end of the spectrum, which um, Vicky put the spotlight on in terms of ensuring a, an equal rollout to those that might not otherwise have access to it. But yeah, this is something I'm really, really interested in at the moment and yeah, keeping a cli- close eye on things. And again, something that really is impacting us all at an individual personal level. So yeah, we went into some gritty relevant human rights issues here but there was also plenty of lightness as well we spoke about Vicky's um, mentorship programs and her podcast so yeah it was a really diverse and interesting one so I hope you enjoy it I hope you get a lot from it and I'll see you on the other side hey welcome Vicky Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's lovely to have you here and awesome to connect with you. Yeah. Um, so you are a fellow lawyer and podcaster as well. You have a podcast called The Passion Factor, um, which is really inspiring. And I guess um, in this interview, we're going to go into a number of your passion factors, uh, including human rights law, mentorship and Andrew podcast. Um, so I'm looking forward to really diving into all those different angles and, and parts of what you do. Um, but I guess let's kick off right back 
where it all started um, with that version of Vicky when she was starting out on her career path. Um, why did you choose law and what was your path into law? So, yeah, that's quite a long time ago to think about. Um, <laughs> and I think I came to law sort of sort of by default. Um, I came from a family of lawyers. So both my father and my stepfather were lawyers. And so it was kind of because I didn't quite know what else to do in a way, but I thought that it would equip me well for the future. I thought that it would give me a good skill set um, in terms of, of a, a future career path. So that's kind of where where I started with it. But I didn't actually, in truth, enjoy my law degree for most of it until I got to the final year when I could study options that really kind of spoke to me and appealed to me, um, subjects such as international law and civil liberties. Um, so I think it, it was a sort of by default uh, thing really for, for my for my path in, into law and, and as in doing my, my law degree um, because I knew lawyers around me and, and also my father was a barrister up in Scotland and his work was very interesting he was a criminal law barrister so I sort of it had piqued my interest actually a little bit in terms of what he did and the kind of cases he was working on. And how did a specialism in human rights come to you like how did you feel called to follow that path? So as I mentioned in my third year of my degree was really the best year for me because it was a chance to, to dive into those subjects or options where I really was interested and I studied international law and I studied <clears throat> excuse me civil liberties and both these subjects were just so interesting and, and so exciting and international law was was you know how, how do states cooperate how do states work into you know between between themselves and intertwined in that was was the human rights kind of piece and narrative so that really sort of sparked my interest and aligned with that was a civil liberties point which is well how do we as that small individual exercise our rights and exercise our liberties so it just seemed to to really kind of resonate with me um but in terms of sort of how i how i came to human rights and what, what called me i think it was a really small experience when i was studying at Bristol and I was a volunteer at a prison creche and I was there to look after the kids when um, their, their their parents were, were with the partners in, in the prison and it just really spoke to me that you know something as small as that was helping those people in prison spend time with their with their loved ones so that really I think sparked for me a real interest in human rights and thereafter when I was doing my master's degree um, I would be at the student union, I remember, on World Human Rights Day with lots of flyers trying to kind of hand them out from various different organisations. But I think it was that that real moment of working in the prison crash that started it all off for me. And then it, it, it kind of grew from there. Mm. And what amazing experience to have at that early stage in your career, that insight into a prison crash. Um, yeah I can I can see how it called you it's just so it's so real isn't it and yeah getting that real insight into an area that you're already interested in. Yeah absolutely gave that kind of human interest factor I suppose to to what I was studying in theory and then you actually kind of go into the prison and you see what life is like for somebody who who, who doesn't who isn't free who, who's had their liberty taken away from them but trying mm. to, to, to humanize that and trying to kind of make that a, a, a more dignified humane experience for them I suppose so it, it, it really it was a very sort of um, formative moment I think I can say. Yeah yeah 
And so what were your first stepping stones into the field? Because I know human rights in itself is quite broad and and there's different avenues you can go down. And it's also quite difficult to get into and to sort of navigate your way because there isn't a set path as such, I guess. Yeah, I'm just curious about your your first stepping stones. Well, so I did the classic law degree. For me, that was the, the routine, but it's not certainly not the case for everybody who, who goes down or who sort of works in the human rights sector by any means, but I did the classic law degree. And then um, I went away and, and did a, a stint in Geneva. I worked for um, a non-governmental organisation in Geneva, um, which was a, a really great opportunity to sort of go out to the, the human rights world or where the UN was and, and to sort of see all those human rights organisations um, working on the ground and, and, and how the UN sort of um, did human rights, so to speak. And thereafter, I came back and did a master's degree in human rights and civil liberties. And at that time, um, it was really unheard of. It wasn't sort of a thing like it is now. And we were four people on our course. And I guess that tells you sort of, A, how long ago I did it. But now if you're looking at a master's degree, it's, it's over 100 people um, on that course. So um, so that was kind of my trajectory. And I, and I qualified as a solicitor, actually. I, I did a, a training contract in a two-partner firm that wasn't really a human rights sort of firm per se. Um, and, and so that was kind of my trajectory of the law degree, the master's, some international experience in Geneva and qualifying as a, as a lawyer were my stepping stones in. And I suppose it was that experience at the, the NGO, the non-governmental organisation in Geneva, that, that started my, my journey um, in, into human rights. And from there, when I, I finished at the um, NGO, I, I, sorry, when I finished my master's, I um, worked for a, a charity. Um, doing immigration and asylum law where I really cut my teeth I suppose in in human rights work. Mm. Yeah thank you for sharing that and that's really interesting to hear um, you know when you did your master's that there were only four people on the course and how things have changed since then. Yeah no no, when when I told people at the time that I was doing this master's degree in human rights and civil liberties they looked at me like very quizzically like what what's that all about and um so it really was kind of, I think, at the vanguard of that whole human rights movement that we have now. And and, and so um, and it was great because we had, I think, a much deeper experience just being four of us there with our tutors, with our professors. Um, it was I really, really enjoyed it, actually, the master's programme. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, more of a powerful experience. It's pretty much one on one tuition, isn't it? Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Fast forward a bit to where you are now. What does what does the work look like that you do now? Bring us into your world a bit. Uh, what kind of projects do you work on? Where have you really specialised? So currently, I'm a an independent human rights consultant. For about twenty four years, I have worked for international organisations, for the British government for the not-for-profit sector, for academia. But so I've had lots of kind of different positions, um, both in the UK and overseas. And when I finished up my last position in August of 2019, which was with a a non-governmental organisation here in London called Penal Reform International, I kind of took took the decision to to go it alone and to, to sort of 
be my own boss, which I'd never done before. So I don't know whether that was brave or stupid or a bit of both. Um, <laughs> I wanted to kind of have that autonomy to pick up projects that I that I wanted to do myself and to craft and create my own practice. In terms of where my interest and expertise lies, it's really in, in prisoners' rights, prison reform, dignity behind bars, torture prevention. That's where my, my sort of area lies. And, and it's these um, areas have always been a theme throughout my practice and throughout my work. So that's where I, I gravitate towards. In terms of what my day-to-day -day looks like, well, I think I can safely say that no two days are the same. Um, as an independent human rights consultant, uh, you are spending quite a lot of time networking and trying to kind of build your credibility, build your practice um, and to nurture relationships. So very often my day looks like um, some of my day will be spent on phone calls, talking to people, either introducing myself to them after a, an introduction over LinkedIn and, and, and sort of telling people who I am and what I can do. Um, or it might be, as I am doing now, working on a, on a piece of work, drafting a, a human rights report. Um, oh, I've just finished actually drafting a human rights report, looking at the ill treatment of creatives and artists in Belarus. Um, I'm working with a non-governmental organisation in Brussels, documenting human rights violations in, in Belarus. Um, and that does cut across my area of, of um, specialisation in terms of people deprived of liberty and people in detention. So there's very much a link there. Um, so that's that's really kind of how my, my day pans out. Plus I sort of have other pro bono projects that I'm that I work on myself. So I I do a bit of that as well, though I try to keep those very much to evenings and weekends. So I have a clear sort of delineation between work, work and then sort of pro bono stuff. But it's it's, yeah. it's a variety of what, what my day looks like. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. And I, I feel you on the wanting some autonomy in your work. Um, that's that's a path I've taken as well. And yeah, you shared so many interesting things there that I could dive into. And I guess the thing that really stands out to me is is the report you've just been working on um, in relation to human rights in Belarus. Um, that's those those issues aren't something that that are on my radar at all. Can you share a little bit more about those and and what's kind of going on there? Just yeah, no, certainly. It kind of and and, and likewise, it, it's a new a new kind of country for me and new theme for me. But um, it all really kind of flows from the elections that took place in August of last year, which were clearly sort of, um, you know, they, they were not genuine. I think. Don't quite remember, but but they were, they were you know it, it was not a true and fair election, a fair and free election, and Lukashenko won, but not in a in a fair way. So as a result, a lot of violence ensued. The authorities came down very heavy on the um, on the protesters, on the opposition leaders, many of whom have had to flee Belarus for their own safety, um, or who have also been detained as well. So a lot of kind of violations kind of spawned that as a result of that. But the report that I've just co-authored was looking specifically at how the authorities ill-treated artists and created the creative community. So that could be bloggers, it could be people working in, in the media space, any anyone in, in, in the creative industries, um, how they have been treated, um, picked up by the authorities, um, their voices have been silenced um, in, in, in a very profound way. So. It, it was very much an eye-opener for me, actually, as well as I was writing this, to see how 
how freedom of expression can be stamped on so easily and, and, and in such a kind of heavy way by, by the authorities. Um, mm. And it's happening on, a, on a, you know, an ongoing basis. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really grateful to have just connected with you to, to hear that because it's not something I've heard through mainstream, mainstream news or anything. So it's, um, yeah, really interesting to hear that that's going on there. And um, why in particular have sort of creatives been targeted? Is it that they've seen, they've identified they've got a voice and they, yeah. I don't know, see things in a more liberal way perhaps? Yeah, exactly yeah. that. They're out there that they can kind of, they, they probably have got a public platform already be it they've got a following on social media be it they're out there literally on the streets sort of you know spreading the word so so that's how I think how and why they're seen as being a little bit of a, a quote-unquote danger to the authorities because they've got that platform um and it's also I mean I forgot to mention the earlier bit about sort of academics as well have have had problems or anyone who, who have been connected to the to the academics sort of scene as well have have um lost their jobs so a lot of people have, have simply had their jobs um removed or they, they they've had their contracts kind of um stopped and and, and truncated etc because they've spoken out because they've sort of said that they support the opposition party so i think it's that very point there as you say that the creators have got the, the public profile the platform um and the access to, to the greater world that, 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 they, that they have been seen to be a threat mm, yeah it's really interesting, actually, because this seems to be a common theme coming up all over the world, actually, uh, with the current situation. I've observed all sorts of different kinds of censorship going on. And I guess, yeah, freedom of speech is a hot topic at, at the moment with the levels of control by social media and how they're exercising it. So it's yeah. really interesting times, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, very, very much so as, as we sit here in the midst of a pandemic, how how the authorities have used that as an excuse to stamp down and to clamp down on on so many of our rights and so many sort of of our liberties but but certainly the freedom of expression point is a big one and, and many countries um have issued what are called fake news laws basically sort of targeted at sort of opposition and i say that with a with a sort of big umbrella but you know bloggers and journalists and anybody who's seeking to question the government narrative or to question the government position um, will be slapped down with with kind of potential legal actions all under the umbrella of, of the fake news law um, so if you sort of say anything you know contrary to what the government position is on covid um, on how the government is is managing the covid situation that could be deemed to be sort of quote unquote fake news and could attract a um, a fine and or a prison sentence so it's it's really worrying times in terms of that respect and the and the and the serious sort of incursion onto onto our rights um in, in many ways mm, yeah absolutely yeah I've, I've definitely observed this occurring and yeah. interesting times and it, it questions yeah freedom of speech mm. democracy um yeah mm. a number of things yeah that's really interesting to have your your insights on that thank you um, so you touched on there, so a lot of your work tends to be international, and I love what you say on your website, London is my home, but the world is my workplace. Yes. Um, so what, what does that mean for you exactly, and perhaps tell us about the international reach of your work? I know you've already touched on it, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know, particular projects you've 
mm. uh, being involved with that you haven't touched on yet or yeah what what that statement means to you the world is my workplace well I think you know London has always been my home um it's where I have my friends my family my flat is here so London, you know it's where I grew up but the, the, the sheer nature of being an international human rights lawyer, I guess it's it's in the name there, that I've always travelled um, for work. So London would be my base, but it, my work has always taken me, me overseas. Now, of course, in the midst of a pandemic, we can't go very far. And so work has had to sort of be be very much rooted back in London. But, but absolutely, my, my work has taken me overseas for both longer term and shorter term positions. So in terms of, of longer term, well, I have lived and worked in France where I was working um, for a couple of years with the Council of Europe in Strasbourg um, so that was that was a kind of a nice sort of um, experience to, to, to be there um, but it's also taken me a bit further afield on a, on a longer term basis to Kosovo so 2004-2005 I took a career break from my then job as an immigration and asylum lawyer for a national charity here and I got out to the field to work in, in Kosovo, where I was attached to the UN, um, working on minority rights issues. So to have that field experience was very critical for my career path as a, as a uh, human rights lawyer and international human rights lawyer there. And then I've done sort of shorter term stints. So with the Council of Europe again, um, they, they sent me out to Ukraine, Russia and Armenia. Um, all really interesting, amazing places to, do, to go to, particularly Armenia um, was, was wonderful, um, to, to go out to train lawyers and the judiciary and, and civil society actors on European human rights law. Um, so, so I've had sort of short bursts in, in different parts of the world. And then most recently, um, I was in Canada for five months in 2018, where I had a, a fellowship in residence at McGill University in Montreal. And there I was able to do some academic work and research around what well, ended up being around prisoners' rights in Canada. So, so London, as I say, has always been home, but but my workplace is the world and, and I will go more or less wherever wherever sort of interesting work beckons and, and where where my, my skills and experience are kind of needed. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Wow. You have had some global experiences, haven't you? Amazing. Yeah. Uh, getting itchy feet now, though. I'm kind of thinking when, when will we kind of get up and travel. But but actually, the pandemic has showed you that you can do business, you can do a lot of work just at home. Um, I, you know, the Belarus report, I've managed to, to do that without actually having to go out there on the ground. So so we can manage in, in, in the midst of a pandemic to, to carry on our human rights work. Yeah, exactly. It has shown we can adapt. And, and that's a very good point. That was something I observed, actually, like, mm. you are in London at the moment, but but the impact of your work is still global, the focus of it, you've still been able to do that report, which was focused in Belarus, as you say. So, yeah, yeah amazing. Mm -hmm. And what is your proudest or most interesting moment or project or achievement to date? Yes, yeah, so I was thinking about this because I think throughout our careers, we all have kind of milestones, right? We all have moments that really just stay with us for, for good or for bad. And I was trying to think about this, but I think there's one particular incident which I think about even now to this day. And it's this, that I was a, I was a human rights advisor to the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, what was the old Foreign Office. And I was advising 
consular staff, um, actually only foreign office staff, um, in, in posts and embassies all around the world um, on, on any human rights issues affecting British nationals detained overseas. And I was out in Japan um, on one of my sort of yearly missions we, we, were, we were sent out, and I visited um, a couple of British nationals who were in detention in Japan. And, and if you can envisage the scene of being in a prison in Japan, it, it's not a, an, an easy environment to be in, not least when you are frail and vulnerable um, and you are suffering from, from um, declining Alzheimer's, which was the case of the woman who I was going to visit um, in Tokyo, or just outside Tokyo. So the, the story is that, that she had been picked up for um, drugs charges at the airport, so didn't even get into Japan, and was serving, I think, a, a five-year sentence. An older woman, as I say, suffering from declining Alzheimer's, frail and vulnerable, and I met her um, to, to, to sort of check on, on her and to visit her. And we were in a prison room, we were sort of in, in a visiting room in the prison, there's a glass wall, she's wheeled in in a wheelchair and, and I'm there asking her questions, etc. Um, about her well-being, about how she's coping in, in a very difficult environment. And thereafter, <clears throat> excuse me, thereafter I lobby the authorities to ensure that she gets the right medical treatment, to try and ensure that she gets access to, to Japanese lessons, because, um, you know, being there, not speaking the language, not being able to interact, is a very isolating environment. So I think for me, that's, that's a really... Um, interesting moment that's a very important moment in my career there and, and of course and the authorities did sort of accept my my um arguments and, and I you know said that they would do what they could to ensure that she got the requisite medical treatment that she did get on to the Japanese classes but that that resonates to me with me to now I believe that she kind of was um sent back to the UK and managed to carry out the rest of her sentence in the UK where she could be with family members but that that really is a, a very enduring moment um, and a very enduring memory of, of my part of my career. Mm, yeah, I feel that. And it's just a great example as well of of the real impact that your work has in terms of improving one's mm. quality of life, uh, dignity mm. behind bars. Like, and it's just so real. I think that that's the part of it that really intrigues me or this is someone's life, it's not a movie, it's someone's real life and something they're going through and, and you're there to improve it and help them get access to justice um, as best as you can. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and, and, and it, it was just so profound to, to, to see her there and, and, and I do believe that the Japanese authorities were, were, were doing the best for her in that situation, but just to, to, to try to impress upon them the importance of this, you know, this, this woman there who, who was so isolated um, mm -hmm. in a completely different environment to what she was used to and, and, and all the privations that go with being in detention in a foreign land and, and, and all, all of the, the, the pressures there. So, so yeah, doing a small bit to, to improve her, her situation in, in, in detention. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And is there anything um, notable at the moment that you're working on that you're particularly excited about? So my work continues on Belarus. Um, as I said, I put to bed that report on um, the ill treatment of artists and creators just maybe two weeks ago. But I still continue to work with um, this NGO in Brussels. And what we're looking to do now is to create an interactive map 
documenting the the, the pockets or the of ill treatment or the incidents of ill treatment uh, more widely in Belarus. Um, so I am working with them in in that sort of piece of work and that legal analysis. So I, I continue to do that. And then in my kind of pro bono time, I like to write, um, albeit that I, I write a lot in my my day job. But I have a a monthly op-ed column with a with a blog here in um, the UK called Comment Central. So I write something timely and something interesting for them once a month on a human rights, social justice issue. So I'm currently penning a piece for them about the the new um, administration in the US um, and Biden's kind of promise to um, to to cancel or to eliminate the the federal death penalty. So I'm sort of currently writing just a very short six, seven hundred word op-ed article about that and hoping that it's a kind of new dawn in terms of of, of, of the death penalty there. So that that's keeping me busy at the moment. But um, I feel like I'm juggling many, many balls at the moment yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. between one thing and the other. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting about the death penalty proposal in the US. I wasn't aware of that. Um, yeah. That will be a biggie in the human rights world, won't it? It would be. I mean, given that, that his predecessor, Mr. Trump, was execution happy, for want of a better word. And, and in the run up to the, the inauguration, um, he put to death 13, I think it's 13 people, and broke with tradition that during this kind of inauguration period or in the run up to the inauguration period, you, you don't you don't sort of um, find any death warrants. Trump actually sort of literally trumped that and, and did the opposite. So. So Biden's kind of promise or pledge to to kind of get rid of the, the federal death penalty would be a huge, huge kind of sea change in, in the US. Whether it will happen, I don't know. Um, but certainly he's making those noises. So, so yeah, so for, for, for human rights advocates and for certainly death penalty um, advocates who are against death penalty, that would be a, a very big moment in, in, the, in the discussion and in the yeah debate. Mm, yeah, definitely be interesting to see how it unfolds. Yeah, um, I feel like there's so many human human rights issues going on at the moment. The spotlight really is on them. And of course, uh, they're always prevalent at all times. But I guess mm. some elements of them are starting to impact us on a day-to-day basis a, li- a little bit more. And yeah. um, in that regard, I'm curious to understand... Um, your your human rights lens on um you know the proposed vaccinations with covid and what what sort of human rights issues you foresee um in in that arena so so definitely i mean i think that, that, that as we sort of said before that that covid-19 and and has brought in lots of government re- um, restrictions in terms of of how life happens for us where we go who we see how we live our life on a daily basis um, and certainly that the whole piece around sort of vaccinations is is very much at the forefront of, of our minds and for me I've been thinking a lot I think around vaccine equality or vaccine inequalities more more accurately I suppose mm-hmm. um, and and where and how the vaccine is distributed to whom um, and sort of bringing as you say exactly a kind of human rights lens to that that, that you know that it's done in an, in an equitable and a fair way and that certain people are not forgotten within that sort of that that vaccine rollout um, 
for my for my sort of mind or sort of where I focus, you know, for example, people in prison, that they should not be forgotten in the vaccine rollout. It's very much a sort of public prison health is very much a public health kind of issue because people in prison will invariably go back into their communities. So so there's that whole piece there. So I think it's it's a lot around sort of the, the, the vaccine inequalities or a point that it's rolled out fairly. Um, and then also the piece around the right not to be vaccinated as well, that, that we as individuals have our own rights to our physical and moral integrity. And that, that very much is around, you know, we can choose to have the vaccine or not, um, as, as it may be if we feel that it's detrimental to our health, if we feel that it's a risk because we don't know how, how widely it's been tested. Um, that, that we can choose to, to, to decline it if we so wish and that we shouldn't be put under pressure to, 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 to do it. And I mean, there's no talk at the moment of it being mandatory. But the question arises, will certain countries say, well, you can only come to our country if you're vaccinated? Um, it's a risk. I mean, they can certainly say, well, you can only come to our country if you have a COVID-19, you know, a negative, sorry, COVID-19 test. Um, but for a country to actually say, well, you can't come here unless you've been vaccinated, I would hope that that would be subject to some sort of legal challenge pretty quickly because it's a very, very draconian measure there. So mm -hmm. lots of kind of human rights issues arising in and around the, the, the vaccine, for sure, for sure. Definitely. And yeah, it's interesting to hear your perspective on it from both angles, mm. uh, both ends of the spectrum. Mm. Um, and is there, I suppose, with the bodily autom autonomy point, is there a particular human rights in one of the rights in the Human Rights Act that really anchors that in? Um, just from my headline knowledge of that, I, I can't think of one, but you know, you're, well, you're the expert. We have, I mean, we do, we do, we have the right to sort of um, our, our, our private life um, and, and sort of that includes our physical and moral integrity there. So that does include our, our, our body and our person, etc. And equally, we have the, the, the right not to be subjected to sort of torture and human and degrading treatment or punishment. I'm not saying a vaccine goes anywhere near that um, there, but, you know, there are sort of you know potential issues there and things so so definitely it, it does cut across the, the, the human rights space it does cut across our our own sort of autonomy to, to choose how we how we conduct ourselves I mean smoking is a I suppose the nearest example or, or, or alcohol consumption and drug consumption um, that we can choose to 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 take drugs, we can choose to, to smoke, um, and that that that's our choice. You know, we know that these things have a, a negative impact on our health, that they can uh, affect us in a, in a in a bad way. But we choose to do that, so so that that's within our within our rights too. Um, but sitting behind all of this um, and all of these these kind of incursions that we're seeing onto our rights is a public health kind of imperative, and and governments do have a right under human rights law to to actually sort of um you know, to, to restrict our rights on a public health ground as a public health context to it but any of those restrictions have to be reasonable they have to be proportionate they can't be discriminatory they can't be forever they have to be time limited so there are certain kind of um limitations and restrictions to any of these of, of any of these kind of limits restrictions mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's really helpful because obviously it's an issue that will affect all of will affect all of us mm. um, at this time, whichever yeah. view people adopt or whichever end of the spectrum they're on. So yeah, thank you. That was really interesting. Um, 
I guess a lot of the things we've touched on in terms of your work, it's so interesting and so real, as I've already said. Um, but I guess I'm just curious to know, whilst it is so interesting and you help people on a real level in terms of their human rights, does that have any impact on your own mental health or emotional health at times? Because the work, I imagine, is quite confronting. Um, so I'm curious to know, you know, if it does, and if so, how you kind of manage that um, in your day-to-day -day life? So I think, you know, the, the very short answer is absolutely yes, it does. I mean, the, the work that we do as human rights professionals, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a lawyer, it can be anybody working in the human rights space, is hugely confronting and very, very tough, um, both physically and emotionally. Um, emotionally, because, you know, we see and we hear testimonies from survivors of torture, survivors of sexual violence, and we, and we, we hear that and we, we, we process that. So I think it, it absolutely has that, that impact on us. From a sort of physical perspective, you know, we, we might put ourselves in places where we are actually at risk in the nature of the work that we do. Now, as I mentioned there, I was in Kosovo, but I was there very much post-conflict, so 2004, 2005. But there are other human rights professionals who I know who are really, who have gone out to really hardcore places um, in the name of, of doing human rights work and have, have really put themselves in the line of fire. So it, it has a real deep, profound impact on us. Um, and we carry really heavy weights and responsibilities on our shoulders. So as an immigration and asylum lawyer, I was going into court representing asylum seekers who were at fear of going back to, to whichever country it was. And, and you know, it fell to me as their lawyer to, 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 to try and convince the court that their life was in danger. So that's a, a huge burden that I, I carried for, for many years there. So it does affect us profoundly and in ways that we, we may not know or, or may not realise. And PTSD and vicarious trauma um, have been very well documented in our sector. And I think it's only now, in recent years, it's actually been discussed quite openly and quite profoundly that, that you know, how, how do we as human rights professionals take care of ourselves? Because if we can't take care of ourselves, then how can we do our work to the best of our abilities? Um, so these are, these are very much discussion points there. And, and as I say, you know, six and a half years for me as an immigration and asylum lawyer, at the end of the day, I was exhausted. Um, and I, I don't say that I was at burnout, but perhaps I wasn't far from burnout. And so that's when I decided to move on because I, 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 I don't think I was doing my clients the best service as I possibly could. Um, so, so, so in terms of how I look after myself, Somebody, when I was at the Foreign Office, told me about the concept of proper selfishness. And it's something that has stuck with me so profoundly, how we look after ourselves, but in a responsible and proper way. Um, so what I try to do is I try to, as best I can, and it's a little bit more difficult now that we're working from home, is to try to keep a, a real kind of delineation and a barrier between work and my non-work time. Um, I always, always take a walk during the course of the day just to clear my head just to kind of get out of myself a little bit to see a bit of nature to sort of see other people um and then in the evenings i just very honestly just take my brain out for a few hours and just watch something completely light inane rubbish on tv just so that i'm not thinking about sort of the heavy duty stuff that i have been during the course of the day yeah um 
and then when I can, I see my little nieces and nephews um, who bring joy and, and it's fun to sort of be with them. So, and just having a good support network of, of my friends around me and, and, and the family. Mm, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for sharing those sort of tangible tips. And I love what you shared there as well about proper selfishness, because yeah. I've been thinking about the meaning of selfishness and it has this negative <laughs> attachment to it but I think it's actually quite important in many ways but actually adding the proper to it um I understand that and it's like a a good balance actually and and as you say like your own cup needs to be full before you can be of service to others and I think it's really interesting that you identified that in yourself when you were um, an immigration lawyer and you weren't quite at burnout, but you had that sort of um, level of self-reflection to be able to identify um, perhaps things were, were nearly going to burnout stage and to be able to give yourself what you needed. And yeah, I think just in general, thanks so much for those shares, because yeah. I think the more we normalise talking about mental health and emotional health, the better, really. And yeah. as you say, it's already come a long way, hasn't it? Um definitely has and I mean one sort of extra thing to, to mention was <clears throat> the importance of of kind of people to who who, who support and, and counsel us and so when I was at the foreign office as I mentioned you know dealing with British nationals who were in detention in really difficult tricky situations um I had a I had a, a case of a British national who was on hunger strike in Algeria and he, he went there and he was detained because of, of sort of political reasons and he died under my watch. And that, again, has been a very, a real sort of profound milestone for me. But what helped me a great deal was that we had counsellors attached to the consular section of the Foreign Office, so people that we, you know, a counsellor who we could go and see, book in time with. And so I did do that. I booked time with her. I think I had a couple of sessions and she helped me just process that whole experience and what happened and my role and responsibility in that whole piece. Um, so I think the importance of having professionals to help the professionals is is so important and it is happening more and 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 as you say there it is coming out more and and we're recognizing it and 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 addressing it Mm, absolutely and thank you for sharing that yeah I think there's you know there's no shame in asking for help seeking help um I think it it would you know it requires strength it makes you stronger and you know we're all a team at the end of the day as humans hearing it together and yeah and I think as you say um reaching out for help even if you're as particularly if you're a person of service in whatever job you do you need to somehow um nourish and fill up your own cup and get the support that you need as well so um so moving on slightly I'd love to hear more about your podcast the passion factor um I've listened to some of the episodes myself um and I love what you're doing with it, sort of putting the spotlight on um, human rights careers. And yeah, I'd love to hear more from your perspective, really. What's it about and, and what was the driver behind this for you? So, well, well thank you for asking about it, because it is, it is one of my kind of passion projects. So hence the kind of name. But I, I so for many years, for like 10 plus years or even longer, um, I've been sort of helping and supporting the new generation of human rights professionals as they start out. And that can be students or it can be early career professionals. Um, Because it's so very difficult 
to start out in this sector now, as I mentioned, you know, that there's huge competition for positions in the human rights world. And I, I really wanted to kind of bring those human rights professionals who are in mid, mid and senior positions to the young professionals and sort of try to, to, to bring them together. And so the way that I thought best to do it was through a podcast. Um, and then the pandemic hit and I thought, well, I want to learn a new skill. So why not learn podcasting um, as, a, as a, new, a new skill? So I kind of created the passion factor pursuing a career in human rights as a, as a series and then joined forces with a, a relatively new startup called Human Rights Pulse, um, which has a, a young and vibrant sort of readership and listenership and audience. And I house it under their umbrella. And I started to approach in the first instance just friends who were working in the human rights sector to go on to come on the podcast to, to kind of talk about their own human rights journey, the ups and the downs and the challenges, but also to impart really practical and helpful advice for those who are listening about, you know, how do you get that first foot in the door? What skills and qualities are needed for the sector um, to work in the sector? What about the financial side? All these practical insights. So that's really the driver and where and how it started. And it's really rolled from there. And, and I've not had anybody say no to me at the moment, but you know, since I've asked them. And we've had people on from the UN, from Human Rights Watch, from the English Bar here. Um, on Monday of this week, I will be interviewing um, uh, somebody called Manfred Novak, who is, who was, I should say, the former UN Special, Special Rapporteur on Torture and is now um, at um, a university in Vienna um, and has curated a, a master's program in human rights. So, you know, really kind of senior human rights people who have, have given time and space to talk about their own journey and which I hope and pray will, 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 will sort of benefit the, the younger generation. So it's, it is really a, a passion project for me that I am enjoying doing very much. Mm, gosh, yeah, you have so many amazing guests on there. And yeah, I'm sure that will be a value to many sort of budding human rights lawyers. I hope or, so. Or even just sharing stories, even people already in the space. I think it's just the nature of sharing stories as well is very powerful. Yeah, and it's like a confessional quite a lot for people when they talk about their own journey. And, and, and they've been very, as I say, candid and upfront and, and open with what, with what they've gone through. Mm. Awesome. And yeah, I love the concept in general, because I think at least my lens, I sort of chose the more corporate commercial path, um, even though a part of me did feel drawn to human rights. Um, and I guess there's a lot more unknown in this unknowns in the human rights path. It's very windy. There's not one set route, which is also the beauty of it and how diverse it is. And I think it's great that you're sharing these stories and, and helping and supporting people in, in their career paths into a human rights career, um, just creating that level of visibility and, and making the unknowns more known, I guess. Um, yeah, I think it's amazing. Yeah, and absolutely. And, and I think young professionals now are just not getting that exposure because, you know, they're not getting it at their universities. I don't think there's well, certainly for the for the law faculties, you know, you, you can get the careers advice about being a, a corporate city lawyer, but but when it comes to sort of pro bono or, or human rights careers, I think there's there's not as much out there as there there could be or should be. So that's why 
this podcast, I'm trying to sort of op- open that up a little bit and, and, and bring those names and bring those people to, to, to the microphone, so to speak, to, to share of their own of their own experiences, definitely. Yeah. And I guess kind of connected with the passion factor, um, I know you've got another a number of other non-legal, let's say, uh, passions and, and work work projects. Um, can you tell us about those? Well, the, well, the mentoring is a, is, a, is a very sort of big, big piece of what, what I do sort of on the sidelines, sort of working with young professionals and, and helping to support them um, as they, they start out on their journey. So that's kind of, um, I suppose, a, a, a non-lawyer thing that I do um, on, on the sidelines of, of, of my work. That's, I guess, the, the, the main thing, just kind of walking walking alongside them um, start out. Yeah, and what what exactly would that involve at a more granular level um, in terms of your mentorship? What kind of support can you offer them with the different things that are involved? Well, I mean, at the moment it would be a phone call, an hour's kind of online meeting. Um, but in advance of that, sort of looking at their CV so I can get a bit of a, an idea of, of who they are, what they've done, where their interests lie, where their subject matter experience lies, and then having a call with them just to kind of tease out what their interests are, what their values are, what type of work they might like to do in the human rights sector, because it's not only about the law, there's so much more that that, that you can do in the space, be it campaigning, be it advocacy, be it policy work, be it research, um, to try to sort of tease that out. Um, And thereafter, sort of keeping in touch with them, um, sharing job opportunities with them. If they've got an interview coming up, perhaps having some dedicated time to, to help them with a, um, an interview preparation, it may be. Um, and, and, and so it, it can take lots of different different shapes and forms. And I'm just now kind of crafting and creating a sort of careers programme, actually, um, and different offerings will sit under that um, in terms of, of how I can support and help those who are looking to, to work in the human rights field. Mm. Wow, that's incredibly valuable. Amazing. Yeah. I think mentorship is such a, a valuable means of support and just getting that that time with you and your lens on their CVs and the guidance you can offer on the calls. Um, yeah, that sounds immensely valuable. And yeah, I think all different kinds of fields you know mentorship is incredibly important and seeking that support which we've already touched on um but in a different way yeah yeah amazing um so we are reaching the end um Mm. but before we wrap up i've got a couple of questions i'd love to ask you um that i ask all guests on the podcast and the first one is if you could speak to that earlier, younger version of Vicky before she set out on her career path, if you could sit down now with her and have a chat with her, what message or advice would you want to give her now with the benefit of the experience that you have now? Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic question. And, and really, you know, it does make you think. But I, I there were two things I think that kind of really um, resonated. I think the first one was sort of, to tell the younger Vicky to kind of be confident in what you can do and not to doubt yourself because I think we all all have those kind of moments of self-doubt but I think that's what I would be telling her and then also to sort of just trust your instincts and to go with every opportunity that comes your way because 
you know, in the hindsight, that that's been my career trajectory, and that's how life has taken me. So I think just to say to her, you know, go with it, and 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 not say don't say no, but just be really open minded and just tr trust your instincts because it it will lead you in, in the right direction. I genuinely believe that. Mm, yeah, me too. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah, really powerful advice. Um, and it's a bit like when we spoke before I recommended the book, The Surrender Experiment to you. And in that, the the guy, the key guy just says yes to everything and yeah. just follows the opportunities that, that come up. And I think it, it feels aligned to that. So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing those. And what makes you legally different? Yeah, again, another kind of great question. And I, and I had... I was thinking about this this morning before our call there, and I. So I think what makes me legally different is that I'm a, a lawyer plus, and, and I, this has only kind of come about quite recently actually. I suppose in the last little while, but I feel that I'm a lawyer certainly, um, but I'm a lawyer plus a writer, or ped writer. I'm a lawyer plus a podcaster. I'm a lawyer plus a mentor. So, for me, law, law has been critical and but it's been a stepping stone to other things and it's given me sort of some amazing skill sets that I can deploy in, in other parts of of my world so so I think for me that that's how I feel legally different that you know it's lawyer plus <laughs> yeah that's a good way of putting it lawyer plus yeah. <laughs> and that really shines through you know you're involved in a myriad of things aligned with your skills values passions and I love that and it definitely is a, a common theme I've noticed I'm noticing amongst um, those who are legally different they're exploring more parts of themselves they're sharing more gifts um, and yeah I definitely see that in you um, branching out and and offering more more of you to the world and yeah absolutely I think it's just not coming away from a label as well just not sort of thinking of yourself I'm only, yes. only a lawyer but actually, you know, what well, what else? And, you know, what you mentioned there, sharing your gifts is, is brilliant. I hadn't thought of that. But, you know, just what else can we offer to the world beyond just, you know, that label that we give ourselves, right? And so, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think in the traditional way things have unfolded, there's a singularity. It's what do you do? It's singular. There's one yeah. label. But yeah. we're now sort of finding the power of, you know plurality I guess and and finding lots of different ways to and to suit our lifestyles and and our passions and our skills yeah and that pivoting as well definitely but that's how I would see yeah. lawyer plus <laughs> yeah love that lawyer plus <laughs> um amazing so how can people firstly connect with you and if they want to work with you I guess either in a human rights capacity or one of your mentorship programs um yeah how can they sort of connect with you to follow up with that various different ways so first and foremost I guess through my website um vickipraise.com v-i-c-k-i vickipraise.com and I have there a contact form so people can just ping me an email that way um I am certainly on LinkedIn so people can connect to me there um, I am on Twitter, my hashtag uh, um, handle, sorry, is at Vicky Praise, um, all one string. Uh, I'm not on Instagram, well, I am on Instagram, but I don't really, I'm not very active on it, so I wouldn't say find me that way. But but those are the main ways, LinkedIn, my website, and through 
uh, Twitter and absolutely happy for people to kind of connect to me and to find out more. Mm. Lovely. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll pop all of those details in the show notes as well. Um, so that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I've loved connecting with you and I love how this podcast is just connecting me with so many different people. As I've said yeah. before, I'm, I don't have any sort of human rights lawyers in my immediate field. And I love how um, me having this podcast, you having yours has sort of connected us. And yeah. um, I feel like I, even I've learned so much from you. It's been amazing. And I know that the listeners definitely will, particularly those who are interested in a human rights career. So, yeah, thank you for sharing your experiences and and yeah the insights you have to share thank you so much for having me thank you you're very welcome okay thank you vicky thank you bye bye thanks so much for tuning in i really hope you enjoyed that episode i'd love to receive your feedback um, you can do that by leaving a rating and a review or you can get in touch personally i'd love to connect with you more you can drop me an email or a DM on Instagram. All of the contact details are in the show notes. If you know someone who would benefit from this episode, do feel free to share it with them. That would be amazing. And don't forget to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode lands. Thanks again and until next time. Cheers.